And then I look down, I'm wearing plastic pants. I'm in a plastic chair. I'm, you know, getting on a plane that's using that fossil carbon to get me home. And I'm completely involved in this thing. I need to just take some more responsibility for myself. I need to look at how I'm dressing myself and do I need to align better between the values I'm publishing in this dye book and my own wardrobe. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hey, Mom. Hey, Emma. Guess what? Next week is Fashion Revolution Week. Yes, and for those who might not know... Fashion Revolution is a nonprofit organization and movement that was founded in the wake of the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh in April of 2013 that killed over 1,000 garment workers. Fashion Revolution is an incredible resource if you're interested in getting involved in changing the industry. And as Lady Farmer, our beginnings started with creating a sustainable fashion line. We call it the Essential Collection. And so Fashion Revolution Week has always been an important time for us to highlight this part of our story. In fact, to celebrate, we have quite a few exciting things coming up. Such as? Well, all of our original Essential Collection garments, the few that we have left, are going to be on sale in the online marketplace, as well as our Line and Toe Collection, which is another slow fashion line that we acquired last year from another local designer friend. Additionally, we'll be giving away, giving away seven total line and toe garments next week via Instagram. So watch our Instagram feed next week. There'll be a different post each day highlighting um, each of the different garments. And all you'll have to do really is comment and tell us which one you want. And we'll just be randomly picking lucky winners. So keep your eye on the We Are Lady Farmer Instagram for that. And the best part of all of this is that we'll be donating 10% of all of our slow fashion garment sales, meaning anything essential collection or line and toe, to the Pay Up campaign, which is something you'll hear mentioned briefly in today's upcoming episode and something we'll go more in depth on next week in our conversation with sustainable fashion writer and activist Elizabeth Klein. Yeah, we are so excited about sharing that conversation with you next week and more on that later. But today we are kicking things off at ground level with Rebecca Burgess of Fibershed, a nonprofit organization that develops regional and regenerative fiber systems on behalf of independent working producers by expanding opportunities to implement carbon farming, forming catalytic 
foundations to rebuild regional manufacturing and through connecting end users to farms and ranches through public education. So it was a big chunky sentence, but Fibershed is a really, really important piece of this puzzle that Lady Farmer loves. At Lady Farmer and of course here on The Good Dirt, we're passionate about this side of the sustainable fashion movement the one that starts in the ground. I get goosebumps every time I hear about what Fibershed is doing. It just really hits so close to home. Yes, it, it really is. And we're so lucky to have had the opportunity to sit down with Fibershed's founder, Rebecca Burgess. She's also recently published a book entitled Fibershed. That's a wonderful primer on all of these things, a comprehensive look at what's happening and where things need to go in order to heal our planet from the ground up. We will also mention that Fibershed has several affiliate groups spread out all over the country doing the work in their local regions to connect producers and consumers to the land, including right here in the D.C. area. So if you're local, listen up. Lady Farmer is part of a small but mighty team working to build out the Chesapeake Fiber Shed. It follows the footprint of the Chesapeake Watershed. And you can follow that project at Chesapeake Fiber Shed on Instagram or at the website uh, org. It's all really exciting and synergistic, and we are thrilled to be sharing this conversation with you. It was originally recorded live for a small audience within the Almanac, our online community. So what you're hearing today is a replay from that day. And we can't wait to continue this conversation with you into the next week and beyond. But for now, enjoy Rebecca Burgess. Prior to fiber shed being a term that I was working with or had fully conceptualized, the background that led to that was my great-grandmother was depression era. In her formative years, as my mom was a single mother, I spent a lot of time with her and great-grandma Mary, and she spent a lot of time teaching me crochet and gardening and was kind of just a, a folk presence in my life, meaning she really had the energy of of the people, which were Danish and North Atlantic generally. I mean, there was some Irish in there, Finnish, Norwegian, and her grandmother had been involved in that watershed, her mother. And she said, like, we go back in this watershed, which isn't very long in North American terms, but, you know, 1890s. And so her house was where she actually had tent cabins, where she would spend a lot of time cooking outside as a little girl, they lived in a tent cabin in the summers, and then they would have a little cabin in the winter that was enclosed, but they lived outdoors most of the summer. And so then they built a house on that land in 1954, and then she provided that house to my mother when she, my mother got remarried. So I actually did spend a lot of time on this one land base that had kind of been going through transitions and family tending for a long time, and it was on an, a brackish water estuary. And so there was a lot of tidal influence, a lot of coming and going, a lot of migratory bird patterns, a lot of egrets and herons. And so anyway, this interface of dynamic ecosystem combined with a very grounded and place-based garden and way of doing things on literally one plot of land. You know, fast forward, I mean, my mom sewed my prom dress. <laughs> I got to college and started studying weaving because my roommate was from Peru and had a, a very 
ancestral line back to backstrap weavers. And she was learning how to reweave herself back into her Peruvian roots. I kind of followed suit with her, started taking weaving classes and understanding materialism in terms of the architecture, not just the surface attraction we have to clothing, but how do you actually construct textile? And then fast forward further, had day jobs, spent time putting money aside so I could travel to village cultures in Doi Tao, the Karan tribe in Northern Thailand, out through the Indonesian archipelago and understand what textile cultures looked like when they were fairly uninterrupted. You know, everything's been interrupted by colonization to a degree, but some less than other communities. And so I was looking for those kind of uninterrupted cultures to see what music, food, and textile culture looked like when it was woven together. Brought that back to the U.S., realized that, you know, the best kind of solution I felt in my heart was not necessarily to go and help communities to, you know, fair trade project. It was like, no, they, their subsistence economy is quite beautiful. Like, I don't want to mess with that. That, that would be another colonial <laughs> intervention, and it's, but in a good hearted way, right? But we've, that's the, kind of been the problem the whole time, this saviorism thing. So I kind of, I came back and I was like, okay, what do we need to do here as settlers whose, my ancestry only goes back to the 1890s in this land, but the, the Coast Miwok go back 13,000 years. And frankly, my community's made a mess of this landscape in like 200 years. It's like, fairly destroyed. <laughs> so, you know, what are we missing here? I'm always trying to bridge like cultures that have lasted much longer than ours. And what are the threads or the recipes? Not that we culturally appropriate from them, but we look, we look at like, what are the ethics and the deeper threads of continuity that we could start bringing and putting into ourselves? What is the indigenous heartbeat that we need to see operationalized in our communities? And so that's ultimately what, what Fibershed is helping to provide like a foundation to explore that question. So it's like, you know, people here in the U.S. making their own clothes again. It sounds so simple. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. with like 2% of our clothing made here, you know, vertically, I would say, you know, that you can put made in the USA tag on something where buttons have been sewn here, but like everything else was made elsewhere. So like, you know, to really ethically produce everything within a community where we're all contributing to the same tax base and we're using that to agree on the whole social safety net. Like people are like, well, made in the USA, is that just some nationalist thing? I'm like, no. Do you want your democracy to work? Do you want a social safety net to work? You have to contribute to this society and we can't contribute if we're all in the service industry. We have to make things again. <laughs> you know, we have to contribute and make this work. And this is about production. It's about becoming a producer, not just a consumer. Yes. And tell that story of when you were, I think you were sitting in an airport getting ready to fly back and <laughs> you had that moment where you got your idea that was the genesis of Fibershed. If you would tell that, I think that's a wonderful groundwork for everything that's happened since then. Thank you for that question. Well, that was a kind of a, a coming to God moment with plastic, um, <laughs> <laughs> fossil fuels. So there was a moment in which I had spent a lot of time with women ethnobotanists. They're natural dyers, you know, they're women who, whose life is about going into the forest and we're out into the semi-arid or desert landscapes all over this country and coming to terms with their place and harvesting and metabolizing these materials into color. So 
you know, really got to know the Northern Rockies and this wonderful Dine family and their work with wild carrot and cliff rose. And so again, this beautiful kind of plant immersive experience, place-based experience. And then I'm using an airplane to get around. And as I'm using that airplane to get around, I'm sitting in an airport and I'm watching CNN because they have it blasting everywhere and can't avoid it. And it says, you know, Obama sends X amount of troops, I think it was 2009, into Afghanistan. And it was clear, it's always clear to me that, and it should be clear to all of us, that U.S. militarism is very driven by the protection of fossil fuel infrastructure and extraction. I mean, we would have saved Tibet if Tibet had oil. Oh, you know, that's what the Dalai Lama says. <laughs> that, you know, we would be in lots of places in the world if we really cared about democracy in its truest form. And I know we care, some of us, but I don't think that is the exceptional reason why we're going out into the world and protecting, air quotes. <laughs> so I was like, okay, enough, you know, enough of these interventions for oil. And then I looked down I'm wearing plastic pants. I'm in a plastic chair. I'm, you know, getting on a plane that's using that fossil carbon to get me home. And I'm completely involved in this thing. You know, I'm, I'm swimming in it. And so again, it's 2009. I'm young, <laughs> much younger than I am today in, in mind. And just thinking, I don't know what to do. You know, I've, been, I've done direct action. I've started college campus groups. I've been so involved in an anti-militarism scene, but we are still swimming in this stuff. We're like onions. We keep peeling off the layers of ourselves to find like what our essence is. And so the layer where I was, was I need to just take some more responsibility for myself. I need to look at how I'm dressing myself and do I need to align better between the values I'm publishing in this dye book and my own wardrobe? Yes, <laughs> I need to make those commensurate. So that's when I came home and within, I think, 10 days of sending the manuscript off, I had already started a Kickstarter campaign to say, I'm going to try to make a wardrobe that's 100% from these fibers in my community and naturally dyed in the community of knitters, weavers, felters, and artisans are going to help me produce this. And I need a little bit of startup support to document it and to pay everyone fairly for what they're contributing to this wardrobe. I called it, you know, the fiber shed wardrobe. It did work and it actually expanded. I had no idea how much opportunity there was because again, I didn't have that lens. I had my consumer lens on for my whole life. It was just about yeah. what can I buy? How can I buy ethically? But I had not really deeply transitioned myself towards a, a producer and what it means to rely on other people to provide you what you need to survive and strip yourself of everything else. And you're only in relationship with those people to create really an ability to survive the night. I would be more at risk of dying of hypothermia within a 24 hour period than I would dehydration. We don't realize how fundamental clothing is. Shelter, our first form of shelter, our clothes, our second form of shelter, our homes. You, you know, you wouldn't be around for very long without them. So it stripped me away of all the things around fashion. And I was like, mm -hmm. no, it's essential. It's essential. I just wanted to clarify that your first book that you submitted in 2009, did it come out in 2009? It was about natural dyes. 
So it sounds like in the time that you submitted it and just even just a couple weeks later, you had really pivoted from kind of a standpoint of an artisan to really immersing yourself into the ethos of really wearing and, and being these things, these things that were made locally. And that's really interesting that it happened right then in that time span. So your first book about natural dyes, and then you began the experiment, which led into Fibershed. And your Kickstarter was the beginning of that. We kind of heard the genesis. And so skipping ahead to someone who might be tuning in and has no idea what any of us are talking about, if they were to go to the Fibershed website right now and look around, what does the Fibershed look like right now in 2021? What are you guys doing? Well, it's it's currently a 501c3 nonprofit that you know we really wanted to get off the ground running after the wardrobe challenge, we as a community of, well, now, actually, if you look today, it's 111 farms, ranches, and contract grazers, and it's 60 to 70 makers, designers, artisans, three mills, mills that have really come forward since the wardrobe challenge, and in one in a very new way, reinvented itself, and then others actually emerged from the grassroots completely into an, a business. And that community, you know, we could have, if the economy was in balance, which is a whole nother side of this narrative that I won't get into, you know, you would, you would think that a nonprofit would not be essential, but you would think we can just start businesses. But the political and economic conditions are not yet flowing harmonically with regional economic development. You know, really building out place-based economies um, there's a lot working against that from trade agreements to just the way that investors want to invest in intellectual property versus things that are open source. There's so many reasons why we did not just jump into building mills. We wanted to. We designed the mills. We worked with the engineers. We worked with social impact investors who are like, food's cool, but we don't know about fiber yet. <laughs> <laughs> we're not ready. We're not ready. And they're getting more ready. So not the nonprofit work is like, okay, let's educate and support our own education. Let's like understand who we are. So we do a lot of ecosystem mapping on, at Fibershed. So you can go and you can link to a producer program. And I call it like the Brady Bunch. It's, you know, when the Brady Bunch starts and you can see everyone's photos. Mm -hmm that's what this page looks like and you can click and you can find out the biography of this farmer ranch and what conservation livestock breed that they're raising if do they sell yarn from the farm do they sell raw fleece there's a person who has felting equipment do they offer services or are they just making their own product and so you can actually network yourself to a degree using the website as it is it's its own landscape assessment mm -hmm. but then we have a policy focus as well. It's, it's emerging and growing every year. And we're looking at things like extended producer responsibility or otherwise known as producer responsibility. So for larger brands who are pumping plastic into the economy, how do we level set or level the playing field between natural fiber? So natural fiber businesses are on a level playing field with these monolithic, you know, again, in quotes, cheap clothing that has a poly acrylic blend why are we not charging businesses the real costs of having to make use of these plastic materials or these plastic natural fiber blends? They don't go into the rag trade well. 
they don't decompose, you know, and so how politically do we start organizing to have them pay for the true cost of cleanup? That's work that we're getting involved in this year, but we also have something called the Regional Fiber Manufacturing Initiative, which is financial modelers, engineers, committees of people who are from the farming side to the manufacturing side, who are design charretting how a Western textile district could look. Mm. So the idea is that we need to put districts, mill organisms, not just one mill, but you know a few independent mills that work collaboratively so a designer can come into the scene with designs and work with the mills as partners, not as people you come in and, you know, niggle out the last penny from them, which is what goes on in contracts in Asia. Mm-hmm. It's a penny more than I thought, you know, but really partner with people and create in a partnership or collaborative space. And I envision like the North Carolina textile district has created a replication of those districts. And I think that could be a global vision that each community kind of understands what it can create from the land, what's your rainfall pattern and your soil types, the human talent and the human will in your community, and what does it want? And you kind of grow manufacturing from those ingredients versus coming in with the next gas station and Best Buy and whatever other big box store that none of us actually really want, or maybe I'm speaking for myself. that's fair, yeah. I think. Yeah, it's like a different vision of land use, you know, instead of like, as you say, which strip mall can we put on this piece of available land? It's more like a, what could be grown here and not in terms of like corn or soybeans or, you know, conventional agricultural terms, but what, what can actually be grown here? I mean, can we grow flax here? Uh, is this a future place for hemp or fibers? And in your book, Fiber Shed, you really talk a lot about the potential for fiber as a a viable um, business for American farmers. And for some reason, it doesn't seem to be on, you know, the radar at all, how this could actually be a, a market. And I know we have to build those marketplaces, we have to build the processing and infrastructures so that the farmers can see their way to actually making a living off of it. And you also talk about the hemp industry. And several years ago, Emma and I were at the Northern Colorado Hemp Expo. I think it was 2017, maybe 18. It was before the new farm bill. And there was a whole auditorium full of people. And probably, I don't know, we might, we might have been the only ones in there that weren't there to grow hemp for CBD oil. The guy that was speaking said, all of you out here, do you realize what a potential there is in growing hemp for fiber? It doesn't seem to be in people's consciousness as a a direction to go. Why do you think that is? Oh, because of the economics of it. The way that the industry kind of went was, you know, Eastern European hemp growers have beautiful, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, there were some people who were in the hemp industry, like Eric Herm, um, trying to think, people who, who saw hemp for all its multiplicity of value started like the Hemp Industries Association. I remember going to meetings in DC and Maui and, you know, really interesting holistic thinkers who were really behind the eight ball politically. They knew that there was a long time before they would be able to grow hemp. And so they were in it, I think some of them on a spiritual level, like really relating to like the idea of a plant as a solution, 
what does that mean? And so I read, I resonated with this idea that we should be exploring every aspect of what the plant offers. Now, economically, that actually does technically make sense because 80% of the biomass of the plant is woody herd. So you would need to build markets for animal bedding, hempcrete, maybe refine it granularly enough that you can put it with clean adhesives into bioplastics or composites for car parts. I mean, that's what that 80% of the woody herd could do. And then the 12 to 20% of the plant that actually has that vast fiber, there's very few places in the world where they knew how to manage that towards a textile grade fiber. Eastern Europe, we saw some of those fabrics getting imported, at least I did in my kind of lifespan. I was buying dew-redded, long staple spun hemp jeans in little boutiques in Mendocino, California, back in the early 90s. And those Eastern European mills were still producing. There were men and women who knew how to do the do ready. There were men and women who were running these small mills. They disappeared kind of from Western Europe, but Eastern Europe, due to economic, the West would say, oh, they weren't as progressed, <laughs> but whatever. They were keeping their indigenous hemp traditions alive, but those mills started to close. And then the, the last most protected part of the world growing hemp was China, which has a 5,000 year history with it. But the issues there are that they can have long lines of people picking out non-textile grade fiber by hand. Like I've literally seen pictures of women pulling out. Can you imagine in the US the labor? Like it would mm -hmm. not functionally work at like even a $15 an hour minimum wage, which we should be arguing for plus. <laughs> yeah. So what it forces is right now, you know, the green gold rush energy comes in. It's no longer like the spiritual holistic version. The laws change. All the venture capital comes in. What's the easiest thing we can extract? CBD. We yeah. have the technology, the venture capital upfront, capital costs are low. Oh, textile? You mean it's only 20% of the plant and we can't mimic what the Chinese did? The Eastern European models were very village style. What is the U.S.'s technological relationship to textile fiber grade extraction? We don't have a series of answers to that yet. And they're technological answers, they're economic answers that just haven't arrived. And it's going to take very committed, smart, thoughtful people to move it forward. And so we, what we got to the point in our research was, well, the, the fiber probably in the U.S. at scale if you have all this CBD and you have all these bifurcated plants, they are not long bamboo-like straight. They're not going to produce those hemp genes I bought in the 1990s. You're going to have to right. corticate those bifurcated stocks somehow, which is kind of a mess in its own agronomic issue, how to bail that stuff, how to get it to the decline. Oh. But then if you can get the fiber out, you would degum it. And so you, what you have to do is remove the pectin and the lignin. And the question mark is how do you do that without really alkaline conditions? Or if you do use very alkaline conditions, how do you recirculate that chemistry so it doesn't create an affluent problem? Because it is unlikely we're going to see the old school do-reading take shape at a scale that would clothe enough people. I think at, at an artisan level, we should be keeping those traditions very alive. Yeah.
And that's what the community gardeners and the nonprofits and the, the villages should still be trying to harness that. But I think at that industrial scale, we're just not going to see those investments until some technological hurdles have been overcome. Well, you mentioned that this community in North Carolina was investing in a small scale processing facility. Has that happened? This was a couple years ago, I guess. Um, one acre exchange. I don't know if that's who you're referring to, but Tyler Jenkins has been working with Farmer Jeff and Katie Haberman Textiles. And yes, I mean, they continue to put one foot in front of the other. Like they, they manufactured a small scale tabletop decorticator with two students who really engineered it and put it together. You know, it would take more capital investment to, to put a two-stage motor on it. You know, it was hand cranked, but it worked really well. And you could kind of open source the plans and build it yourself. We've open sourced decorticators that were built out of wood. So we have those plans, I believe, still on our website. Decortication, right, is just you put the stock through these gears and the fiber comes out and the woody herd drops. Yeah. And you start doing that separation. And so we've, we've open sourced plans. Tyler Jenkins and his community are still working on how to remove the lignin and the pectin effectively to soften the fibers. That's somewhat part of this year's exploration again. I mean, it's just every year to trying to refine and refine. And I think the ingredients to success are time, patience, yes. and capital resources. And again, human passion which I think is generally, you can keep human passion alive when you support people to do the work and you are patient with them. Good things happen there. <laughs> yeah. Time. I think there's so much energy towards getting it legalized and getting it off the controlled substances list and so forth. And then that happened. And then it's just been this kind of like, okay, where is it? Of course, it's different in every location. But anyway, that's interesting. Thank you for bringing us up to speed on where hemp textiles are. <laughs> I just have one vantage point, but I... You've sort of so beautifully and articulately laid out so much for us here as to kind of the issues and the hurdles and your previous answer as to why it's not economically really viable or attractive right now. So I'm curious, what is your driving vision for the future how do you see this working and what do you hold out in front when you leading Fibershed and the projects that you choose to move forward with and direct do you have like a clear is it in your like outline like this is where we need to go or is it more organic and how do you sort of put one foot in front of the other and well I think it goes back to you mentioned what would people see on our website we also work really a lot with this idea of the carbon cycle on, you know, how to harmonize with this bigger earth cycle that either if we don't harmonize with it, we'll continue to destabilize our climate. If we do harmonize with it, we have a chance of stabilizing the climate. So when you look at everything through the lens of carbon and really trying to find a way to, again, harmonize with this bigger earth cycle, we worked with a woman from the Union of Concerned Scientists, but she was at UC Berkeley. She was a postdoc at a biogeochemical lab. Marcia Delange, and she did an analysis with us of what it would take to create truly climate beneficial clothing, clothing that has not a net emission, but it actually is responsible for sinking more carbon into the soil carbon pool, even through the use phase. So once you get that textile in your closet, you know, washing it in cold water, air drying, what would it look like to really stabilize the climate through how we wear and what we wear? And it required regional supply chains. This idea of shipping things 
long distances just doesn't actually functionally work. Last night I saw like, oh, they're gonna have a wind and hydrogen fuel cell maritime shipping industry. So we'll still be able to, you know, move things around the world. <laughs> I think the economics behind transforming maritime shipping are we're gonna see the same economic hurdles like that we have to hemp textiles. We can't even degum the fiber. We know how in many cases, we just can't do it economically. So so much of what I see is. I see what we need to do economically. I'm not sure how this economy manifests that, but we keep trying to find the merge lane between the current economy and what we know needs to happen. But we've realized that you ultimately need things to be proximal to each other. You need the farming and the manufacturing to be near each other. And you need the community who works in the mills not to commute long distances. We did the commute mile look. And even if you are in an electric car, I mean, I don't think people understand, or maybe people do how much footprint this transition to renewable energy is. It's a huge amount of fossil carbon required to mine lithium for the batteries that we're putting in Teslas and electric cars. The rubber on the tires is still shedding and the plastic in those tires we're now finding is completely clogging up the metabolic pathways of marine ecosystems because during a stormwater event, the shedding of our tires, that material is getting into our wetlands and our tributaries. So we looked at this whole picture and we're like, you know, the solution really is place-based economies. You really need everybody. You need the workforce to live and work in the same place. And you need the mills to be running for renewable energy, but you need them near the farms. And so we did all the carbon analysis. So my vision is really, you know, it's a vision that just harmonizes with what earth functionally needs. So do you think that the slowdown of 2020 and we're fewer people were commuting. Do you think that has given people a glimpse of what this might look like? Or is it just, you know, a temporary thing in most people's eyes? And let me add to that. How do you think the events of the 2020 and the pandemic and all and the shutdown has affected your mission? It's painful, it's, you know, to watch the impact but yes. it's just pointing to all the brittleness in our system. And I wrote an article that was written way back when we all got shut down, disease as a driver for change. You know, that article is actually based off of PhDs in ecology writing white papers prior to COVID. <laughs> like generally speaking, ecologists understand disease as a driver for change and that disease creates new state changes in ecosystems. You know, think about a fungal disease in a forest. The forest may never be quite the same. There's a causality for that. And to allow it to fully express itself as a disease in a forest, that this forest becomes something new. There might be a succession of new plant life that has to come in. These are hard things for humans to watch in the lifespan that we have, which is very short. It's hard to watch devastation <laughs> and cataclysm. But on the bigger geologic and ecological timescales, disease is part of what changes systems. And that change is in some ways for us, I think a warning shot across the bow, like you've disrupted the viral pools, you know, however you think of the origin of this virus, because there's debates, but the origin of the virus in most cases is coming from a human disruption of a viral pool. You know, it's wildlife trade. It's contained animal feeding operations. That's where the virologists study, you know, the next virus, they're going out into the CAFOs, 
containing animal feeding operations across the world looking for these viruses. They go into the bat caves, you know, taking blood samples, making sure that they're aware of the next virus. So we know COVID was us disrupting. It's an expression of a disruption. In a much higher level, we could say, okay, well, we just accept that disruption and that humans are disruptors and we're going to get cataclysm. Or we could kind of pause and say, well, what do we need to not disrupt in that way? Do we have a choice as humans with this incredible frontal lobe, <laughs> this incredible evolutionary thinking capacity? We have a choice in this. How do we disrupt? Do, do we disrupt to benefit? Like the indigenous communities I work with will say, what is a beneficial disturbance? How do you use fire as a tool to benefit an ecosystem? How do you use flood as a benefit to an ecosystem? You know, harmonizing with disturbance or, or creating disturbance in an unconscious, greedy way. So COVID to me was just kind of like, I mean, I will say my privilege allowed me to feel and think through these things, right? I wasn't just racing yes. to pay every bill. So I see my privilege in, in being able to talk about it like this. But I also would say, you know, for those of us who have that privilege, we should be using this as a, a part of an ingredient to ask for major change in how our economy works. You know, the, the fissures of inequity that were shown between yeah. textile workers and the big companies that didn't pay for the work. So yeah, it, it did. It put more focus for me on democratic workplaces, co-ops. If we had co-ops and we didn't have publicly traded companies, you would have never seen women starving in Myanmar because textile corporations were unwilling to pay for inventory, but those mills paid for the labor and the textile and got everything boxed up and ready to ship. And then the company said, no, it just ruined whole systems of production and lives because the West just decided it didn't want to pay up. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, that's really sinister. And we've known it the whole time. We've known what neoliberal economics has been doing, but this is what it does under this little disruption of a virus you can't even see. Yeah. What happens under severe climate destabilization, which we're already starting to experience? You know, we need to create more resilience in the system, which is, I know, is a thing everyone always says, but I, I think we need to unpack that word resilience for ourselves and really think through what this could look like. And I do believe fiber sheds, food sheds, medicine sheds material culture sheds, an economy that matches up with the ecology of a place, because economy is supposed to mean the management of a home place. That's what the word's supposed to mean. So anyway, I feel like Fibershed's mission and vision is just only accelerated under these conditions. Yeah. And what is encouraging you lately? What are you encouraged by? What keeps you positive? Keep People going. like yourselves, truly. People who see and feel into the work and are willing to evaluate what it means for them and take the time in this world that is very increasingly distractible to kind of just go, well, wait, who is in my community and what could we do together to create essential goods like clothing together? I think that bringing that pause and allowing our humanity to really ripen and flower with one another in community, that's kind of what a Fibershed's attempted goals are, like let people fully express their gifts and talents because everyone's are so unique. And when you have a place-based economy, you start to see like people really express themselves. I'm starting to see that, re that reflected back when we give people the time, the money, the space to create what they're here to create. It's exceptionally beautiful. 
So what inspires me? People more and more so. Like I didn't start that way. I started very production oriented. Like how do we make clothes from what we have? But I'm becoming, as I have these relationships that are now in their, you know, 16th year for me, you know, long-term weaving colleagues, long-term mill relationships. I'm starting to see the beauty of everyone internalizing these values in themselves and then coming up with their own kind of soup. Like this is how I internalize these place-based values and this is what I have to offer. And, and watching that offering come forward is a tremendous gift and inspiring. Yes. We always ask our guests and we get all kinds of wonderful answers. What does the good dirt mean to you, literally or metaphorically? I would say it would be a soil rich with microorganisms and fungal networks, just a place of incredible fertility where so many different expressions of beauty can come from that. So it's it's about diversity, ultimately, because below ground diversity creates above ground diversity, above ground diversity enhances below ground diversity, and the good dirt is the medium and the exchange between below and above. And I think the good dirt to me is, yeah, just a panoply of ecological relationships between things. Nourish the good dirt. <laughs> That's yeah. <laughs> what I spend a lot of my time doing, actually. That's so beautiful. Thank you. So Inez has a question here. He's Inez. asking about senior citizens and does Fibershed do any work with like senior citizen and groups for the manual labor? Because in many parts of the world, seniors are a working part of the community. Very much so. I tried in our little home community here where just in my town, I went to the free senior citizen lunches that are provided by some of the churches. And I asked if people wanted to do some knitting or weaving and for pay, of course. It was interesting. I, I think where I'm living here, the conditions that the elderly community, elderly now, a lot of them did not have the ties to the craft. Like it had already been severed, their understanding of how to knit and crochet. They're only a very small group in my community. And this, this may be very abnormal, but my observation was like, they were like, no, we'd rather play golf. You know, we've got other things to do. We want to hang out with our grandkids. And it was a different vibe. And so I wasn't able to create the kind of fervorous community of elders around some of the knitting work that I had thought that might be possible. But I would say in probably most other communities, there's more possibility there, I would hope. Certainly in the rest of the world, it is like in Doi Tao, Thailand, the grandmothers were doing all the hand spinning in their homes and then the hand spun yarn would go to women who are mother age, not grandmother age. And then they would backstrap weave, but they would do it in one big communal area as mothers because their small children who are under the age of maybe six would all communally kind of run around this open air bamboo and teak open air workspace. And yeah, and I so when I would visit in the village, I'd walk like 25 yards from the common workspace where all the mothers and the children were to the grandmother's cottage, and she would be doing all the hand spinning. And literally, you just you're walking the material. Can you imagine? No maritime shipping, no diesel trucks. Here's my yarn. I just spun it. This is grandma walking over <laughs> to mom. <laughs> mom is dyeing the yarn from material that Husbands and grandfathers went out and harvested in alley cropped tamarind tree systems that have an understory of wild plants that I didn't have an English name for. 
Those are harvested, brought back to the center of the village. Yarns dyed, backstrap loomed, <laughs> textiles made, textiles worn, done. All within a like three mile radius. That's incredible. I'm so enlightened, I think. <laughs> and normal, like yeah. it's what people used to do. <laughs> yeah. We have another wonderful question from Amanda. She says, what are the steps you would take for measuring what your region wants in terms of fiber shed? You mentioned rainfalls and soil patterns. Can you expand on those pieces of the mosaic that make for healthy fiber shed? I would just say that, you know, the rainfall and the soil patterns, often the, the farming and ranching community in your community has been fairly aware of what's possible and things have been tried and failed over centuries and millennia, depending on the continuity between like the native community and the white settler community. Sometimes that was a, a violent disruption. Other times in little hidden treasure moments, there was collaboration there. And so, you know, those soil types and rainfall patterns have been defining material systems, again, for thousands of years. So even in your community where you might think like, I need to define this, it's often already been defined and it's just by doing an ecosystem map of interviews and looking at the landscape and paying close attention to what people are already doing. There's a lot of information that can come forward. What we use soil pattern and rainfall to define often is when a farmer who's in production ag, who's been tilling fence post to fence post for years since the start of the green revolution, we use those soil types and, and water rainfall patterns to understand how to repair systems that might be a little bit broken and there's no evidence of what was and what used to grow has been totally upended. So fibershed doesn't generally create wholly new systems. Sometimes we have to, but we're often just kind of creating a tapestry with hints and knowledge from surrounding people who've gathered it. We often are an aggregator of knowledge versus an innovative creator of something completely new. Thank you very much for that. And we have a couple of comments here and then I'll ask you a closing question. Marjorie says that in Atlanta, there are many seniors that knit things, caps, gloves, and shawls for the homeless, pallets made out of grocery bags and so forth. In answer to your question, Inez. And then, oh, Inez says in her home country, we have a group of homeless women weaving for a foundation to make baby blankets, bottles, and hats for newborns that are given to the impoverished hospitals. So it's wonderful to see that sort of thing going on in these communities. So do you have anything to add? What would you like to leave our audience with about yourself and the work you do in Fiber Shed and just anything you have to add to this conversation before we close? Well, I've loved your questions and this conversation. I hope that folks feel just inspired to know that they really have something to offer. This doesn't work without everyone kind of figuring out what they have to contribute and what one's own obligations and responsibilities are to the community. And in some communities, that's just the nature of how people work. I have to often use it as a mantra because I live in a community that I think is more sometimes about what they can take from a system, not what they can offer a system. So I want to make sure to keep inspiring that. Like we always have something to offer and everyone really does. And that's where real nourishment comes from. That's where the good dirt comes from. You feed the soil, it feeds you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And as we mentioned earlier, we have more Fashion Revolution Week goodness in store for you on next week's episode with Elizabeth Klein. So be looking forward to that. And if this is your first time here on The Good Dirt, welcome. This is a show produced by Lady Farmer. 
You can find us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer or online at www.ladyfarmer.com. And if you enjoyed this episode and you learned something or you're just now learning about Fashion Revolution Week and you want to spread the word, a great way to do that is by sharing this episode and following us um, and signing up for our mailing list. There's so much to be learned and celebrated here. And that includes all of the goodness happening this coming week. So this is April. Fashion Revolution Week is technically April 19th to 25th, but we're we're just celebrating this entire time. We've got celebratory discounts on all of our slow fashion garments. So that's Essential Collection and Line and Toe. And keep your eye on Instagram for those giveaways. It's going to be amazing. And, of course, a portion of all of these sales going to the pay-up campaign that Rebecca mentioned in this week's episode. And we'll hear a lot more about next week with Elizabeth. So definitely come back next week uh, to hear that conversation with Elizabeth Klein. We're very excited about it. Yes, we have so much more coming up about Fashion Revolution Week. And we thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll see you soon. Have a great weekend. Bye.